it's quite remarkable, you know, when you look at it. On the one hand, Windsor-Essex has just 2% of the provincial population, you know, 410, 420,000. But we've got, in, that, in our region, we have 1,000 manufacturers, 250 to 300 uh, machine tool dye and mold companies, uh, automation companies, again, the NAICS codes are a little broad there, so, you know, on average, about 350 companies working in some point, whether it's the hardware or software and about 85 parts companies. And that's growing, you know, did mention the battery plant and some of the supply chain, uh, so that's growing. So it's extraordinary, you know, when, when we... Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, Brendan and I are once again in Windsor to chat with Stephen McKenzie, President and CEO of Invest Windsor Essex about economic development and the litany of things happening in Windsor, Ontario. Now, we've talked about the profession of economic development on this podcast before. In fact, we even had Wendy Stark from Invest Windsor Essex on the podcast some months ago. Check it out if you haven't already heard it. It's a great chat. However, this episode is specifically about the economic development activities happening in Windsor, about the disruptions the city is experiencing, and what Stephen and his team are doing in response. So what is happening in Windsor? What's going on in the automotive capital of Canada? Well, for starters, they're evolving from their century-long history of automotive manufacturing to become the automobility capital of Canada. However, as we learned in the episode, the disruptions happening today are different from the past. Automobility doesn't just mean the installation of new 5G towers. It's not just about making electric cars. It's not just about improving cybersecurity. And it's not just about a new battery plant. It's about all of these things and much, much more. As most people know, Windsor recently won the investment of a brand new battery plant, thanks in no small part to the work done by Stephen McKenzie and his team. He discusses some of the work needed to make, as he puts it, quote, a five-year overnight success happen, end quote. This joint venture between Stellantis and LG Energy Solutions will help ensure Windsor can continue to participate and innovate in the new global automotive and automobility industries for decades to come. There we go, we're rolling. And Brendan, we are in Windsor again, aren't we? Absolutely. It's the uh, the automotive capital of Canada, isn't well, it? Well, Nick, uh, <laughs> I think more specifically or more uh, correctly, it's the automobility capital. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. And with us today, would you please introduce yourself, sir? Yes. Hello, Stephen McKenzie, President and Chief Executive Officer for Invest Windsor Essex. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about Windsor, automotive, automobility, and a few other things, too. Um, I think the best place to start is because, I mean, you guys have over a century of history in automotive manufacturing. Let's start with that because, I mean, when we drove in, we saw big on the sign, Windsor, automotive capital of Canada. Tell us about what's happening now. Yes, well, we will have to get those signs updated. Uh, I was going to say when your introduction, you're both right, I'm happy to say. You know, since uh, 1904, uh, when Henry Ford put his first manufacturing plant outside of Detroit, here in Windsor with Gordon McGregor, and the reason, because they wanted to be able to sell into the, uh, to the uh, British Empire. And so uh, we have a long history here in Windsor-Essex of, uh, of being the automotive capital. But as, uh, as Brendan had mentioned, you know, industries evolve, you know, over, you know, 120 some years now. The industry has seen an incredible technology-driven innovation and transition 
previously, of course, the move to automation from uh, uh, manual labor, but most recently, yes, automotive to automobility. And what do we mean by that? Well, it's automobility, the, the movement of people and goods uh, using technology, and you know, there's four main pillars to that. So people say, automobility, what are you, what are you talking about, Steve? Say, well, we use the acronym CASE, C-A-S-E. Connected automotive technology, autonomous automotive technology, security. It used to be shared and shared driving, but the pandemic has, has actually decreased the, the desire for shared transportation. But certainly cybersecurity uh, is, is paramount as we explore these topics. And of course, the E is the electrification uh, of the industry. So if somebody says automobility, give me an example. Those are the four pillars that we talk about. Tell us about some of the different suppliers and different some of the some of the new some of the innovative companies and people that have come into this space now that you're looking to plug into what I guess now is auto. I was going to say automotive again, but automobility. Who who are some of the new interesting sure, players? Sure, sure. Well, and that's actually you know a transition that's been occurring over the past five and a half six years. Uh, we've had very large successes and companies. Uh, most of your listeners will be familiar with the Nexstar battery plant here, the joint venture between LG Energy Solution and Stellantis. Earlier this week, you know, we've had another amazing announcement in, in southwestern Ontario in St. Thomas with the Volkswagen announcement that Volkswagen intends to build a, a battery production plant. So, but then around that, we've got the supply chain now coming in. So we've, we're recruiting and, and, and Ontario will be recruiting those supply chain companies to help supply uh, the manufacturing of these products when they, when they go forward. But it also opens the opportunity for innovation, for entrepreneurs that are in the field. Some of the smaller companies have been in that cybersecurity space, like uh, our, our friend AJ Khan at Vehicula, for example. Love him. Yeah, he's, he's tremendous and he, he was, had been supportive. And it's funny, AJ was hired to do a little research on the cybersecurity and you know, in his dealings with Windsor Essex, what's that old saying? He liked us so much, he bought the company. He, he, he moved his company down here, he moved here, he's doing a terrific job. He's a great mentor, he's involved with our friends at SHIELD, which is the, the Cybersecurity Institute at the University of Windsor. So an example of, of some companies that you may not have heard of five years ago, but as the transition of the industry goes forward, just tremendously important as all companies, even not just when the vehicle's finished, but the companies during their production have to going to have to demonstrate that they've got cybersecurity uh, protections in place. So Brendan and I like music. We talk about bands a lot, and it seems like what Windsor is going through right now is kind of like when a band puts out a different style of music, right? Like when the Beatles decided to put out some, you know, not just you know little pop songs. Now they're getting a little more and there's a bit of a kind of, or one Metallica. Or Bob Dylan went electric. You know? Ooh. <laughs> there you go. With, with help from Canada. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. So w when bands do it, when bands change their core essence, they obviously bump, bump into some challenges with their fan base. Has Windsor experienced, like what sort of challenges have you guys seen? shifting you know like you've got you were making acdc rock and roll mm -hmm. and now it's a little more something else what sort of challenges have you bumped into well that's a great question uh because you know with tech what they call you know technology disruption what happens is there are new opportunities created but it may mean that some uh, existing technologies become obsolete or redundant the good news was that 
having that history, having that automotive DNA in our region and the reputation of our amazing labor force certainly was an important component of our ability to recruit and to be a place where this evolution of technology, this innovation in the industry could take place. That's number one. The challenge, of course, is, for example, the labor required for, to, to manufacture an electric vehicle is 40% uh, less than the labor required to manufacture an ICE or internal combustion engine vehicle. So yes, the evolution, the green evolution, all of the industry trends, every single OEM has put forth a, a date by which they're going to only produce electric vehicles. So we know it's happening, but there will be still you know, that, that DNA, that base DNA is an advantage, but there will need to be some retraining of some uh, workers that are now working on a product line or in an industry or in the industry, but that the technology is going to mean there's going to be less of that, like parts for internal combustion engines, for example. So good base to work from, but certainly there will be, as the industry transitions, uh, supply chains will transitions, labor uh, force needs, labor skills will need to transition. And I'm happy to say that that's well known to us. Our in ecosystem partners like our post-secondaries here in Windsor, St. Clair College, University of Windsor, and around Ontario that have the programs here, they're understanding that and, and changing curriculum as we speak to make sure we meet the needs of this evolving industry. So I mean, I'm glad you brought up the point about entrepreneurs, who are looking to get into automobility, what kind of resources does an entrepreneur need? What are they asking for? And what kind of resources are available on the ground in Windsor-Essex? You know, whether it's the VR cave, whether it's resources at St. Clair College, what do you have to offer them that's attracting them here? Yeah, uh, you've, you've, you've hit on them, uh, Brendan. Certainly, <clears throat> you know, the fact that there's the academic support and even in some cases now down into the high school levels. So they know that they'll be able to enroll in programs to get the skills and education they need to get good jobs when they're finished. You know, one of the things that, that we've spent a lot of time on over the past six years here at Windsor Essex is we have been very successful and have received excellent support in the form of grants from the province of Ontario. Originally it was AVEN, Automo Automotive Vehicle Innovation Network, now this the round two is OVEN, Ontario Vehicle Innovation Network, and our federal government through FedDev to give us some grant money to help build capacity, to help provide resources for existing companies that will also need to transition. It's not just companies we bring in for the supply chain, it's what are the opportunities for our existing companies to make those changes and evolve with the industry. But also entrepreneurs, so you mentioned the cave that we have at our Automobility and Innovation Center on Wheelton Drive. Uh, between the software and the hardware, that's about a $5 million piece of equipment that normally small companies, entrepreneurs would not have the ability to access, you know, it's only accessible in your large OEMs and, uh, and large tier ones, but we have that technology here. So we've been working with companies that are testing their technology, virt doing virtual twins as, as, a, as they develop and test their, their work. So, and then there's wonderful support. You know, we have uh, a RIC here, a regional innovation center, uh, WeTech Alliance, who's, who's got the scale up program. So yeah, we, we've been strengthening our business case. Uh, when our, our battery plant was announced last March, you know, people, you know, are you excited, Steve? I said, yeah, it's a five-year overnight success, right? Because, you know, of course, on the day of it, 
it's one day it didn't exist, the next day it did, but certainly we were working hard to build our case and strengthen our product, which of course is Windsor-Essex, over the previous five years by, with the support of, of, of all levels of government, including the county, uh, city of Windsor, as I said, the provincial government, federal government, and now we have a really, when we're uh, talking to companies, FDI, or working with our existing companies, we really have tools and assets to help them evolve as well to keep pace with with the demands that are coming from the industry can we talk a little bit more about the vr kit because i've i've chatted with those people a few times that that's a great resource that I don't think enough people are aware of. Tell us a little bit about what you can accomplish at the VR cave. Yeah, it's and it, that it continues to evolve as well. Um, we have a number of, of software programs, but one of the key things, so one of the things as Trillium, you know, you've heard one of the buzzwords for manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, Industry 4.0, right? So Industry 4.0 in its simplest form, as you know, is utilizing technology to help uh, make a manufacturing process more efficient and, and effective and perhaps add to the quality. Well, for example, being able to virtual twin a product. So we can take a two-dimensional CAD drawing, put it into our software, have a 3D interactive model in the cave where we can virtually test it. So let's say traditionally you would do the research, you would do the diagrams, you would try to find someone to build a prototype, okay, expensive, Right? And oh my gosh, what happens if you build the prototype and find out, oh, this sensor has to be three millimeters to the left and you've got to go change it. Well, we can test, we can simulate the, this product in action or this piece of equipment in action or this vehicle in action. Uh, so we've worked with a lot of companies locally to do that, to help them develop their products, uh, help them place machinery on a shop floor. And we were the, the virtual partner for the Project Arrow, which I know you're familiar with, uh, led by uh, our friends at APMA. And so Project Arrow kind of was, was birthed in the cave. You know, we took the diagrams uh, uh, from the winning team, you know, uh, and, and uh, converted it to, a, to a, a, a virtual 3D model. And then uh, that helped as uh, they were working to actually build the prototype, they could do the testing. And now if you, uh, when, when uh, if you get a chance, when uh, you're next to Project Arrow, the actual vehicle, you know, you can take, you know, a tablet that, that we have in our software and you can go up and, and you can zero in on a part or a piece of equipment and it pulls that out, tells you about the manufacturer, tells you, shows you the picture. So just like uh, science fiction on, uh, on the movies, you know, it's, it's the ability to, to do that and test that. We have uh, a virtual twin of M-City you know, the test track, the autonomous test track at the University of Michigan. We have a virtual twin uh, we're, we're developing for uh, Ottawa's test track, Area X.0. So what does that mean? Well, in that case, somebody doesn't have to take, we can simulate them going around that track and that testing without them actually being on site and to, you know, a very high degree of, 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 uh, of perfection there. And now we've we've working with virtual where we have a situation where you don't even have to be at our cave we can bring you in with a headset virtually and you can test your product using our cave from anywhere on the planet so the ability to do research and development prototyping uh simulation and in some cases you know uh as you know for uh 
I think it's a, what is it, a billion miles that a, a product has to be tested before it can be given the, the license to be you know, included in manufacturing. Well, virtual testing counts towards that. So there's a lot of things you can do with it. So we've got uh, a new initiative going on now, a prototype pipeline, for example, working with companies that are looking to develop a prototype that's under our, uh, our OVEN program. So we're really putting it to good use. Uh, professors at St. Clair College and the university, you know, have access to it. We've had high schools in. We had uh, uh, Black Boys Code, you know, is, has come in, has had a demo and we've, uh, we're going to assist them. They're, they're all going to do a project, and um, it, it will end up with their project will be 3D printed, but they'll be able to come into the cave. And, you know, those, those uh, children are, you know, uh, I think from the ages of, you know, 10 to, to 18. So we're really, you know, using it to help the community, whether it's training, whether it's developing product, uh, and, of course, it's really good. You... you you can say you're a technology-led, technology-driven economic development agency and economic development region, but when you have those type of assets, you know, it's, uh, it really reinforces that. That VR cave likely has uses outside of automotive, doesn't it? Well, yes, absolutely. It wasn't directly related to one of the grants that we had because, of course, it has to be related to automotive and automobility, but we did have the opportunity to assist Habitat for Humanity. There was a uh, conceptual 3D printed homes for, uh, for low and, low and uh, medium income affordable housing. So we were able to simulate in the cave the 3D printing of these homes and then test them for accessibility issues. Like if there was a wheelchair, you know, can we get around the corner? Have we left enough room? And then they did those testing and then not sure just how many at this point, but at least one home has been 3D printed by Habitat Humanity in Leamington. So not automotive, mobility, I guess, moving if we have that uh, accessibility, but, but it's, it is an amazing tool. Uh, another project, we have a 3D twin of the Windsor-Detroit tunnel. So we say, well, why would you do that? Well, you know, let's talk about a connected and autonomous technology for a minute. You know, what's one of the things or one of the, the risks when you're dealing with that technology is, well, what if we lose, you know, our signal, what communication? Uh, anybody who has walked along the waterfront in Detroit or Windsor and has their phone pop back and forth between the carriers knows what I'm talking about. So we can actually simulate vehicles going through the tunnel. We can simulate autonomous vehicles going through the tunnel. And we can work with example with communication carriers to simulate the placement of equipment in the tunnel. How would we maintain that signal to allow eventually for autonomous vehicles to move? So it's pretty amazing. And again, I really sounded like I knew what I was talking about there, didn't I? But I really, my knowledge, I mean, we have the most talented, amazing uh, team up there at the Automobility and Innovation Center that, you know, for programming and understanding the software and, and helping the companies. It's really, uh, it's really amazing. I highly recommend we can, uh, we can do a, a podcast someday right in the cave, right in the cave with the, the, the screens all around you because uh, it's, quite, uh, it's quite amazing. Maybe we could do a, a twin of the a digital twin or a virtual twin of the podcast. And, uh, <laughs> Optimal placement of microphones. Uh, yeah. yeah. That'd we, be cool. Yeah. We had an opportunity uh, earlier today to spend some time with one of your uh, newest uh, additions to your manufacturing ecosystem. They've 
moved from elsewhere in Canada to Windsor and were frankly quite impressed or one of the main reasons that they moved here was because of the workforce and I, I think it's important to remember yeah labor markets are tight but they're tight everywhere what is, what makes Windsor's and Essex County's workforce distinct and how does that give you an advantage when it comes to uh, attracting investments uh, retaining investments uh, or kind of you know upgrading investments with new technologies industry 4.0 new practices with innovation yeah that's a that's a great point and I know the company you're speaking of wonderful wonderful people and uh, we've enjoyed working with them as they've set up that reputation you know uh, this is region is known you know is the, the place that builds the things that build things you know like the machine tool die and mold industry the automation certainly and then of course the the manufacturing with the autos the OEMs and the and the parts companies it's quite remarkable you know when you look at it on the one hand Windsor Essex has just two percent of the provincial population you know 410 420,000 but we've got in that in our region we have a thousand manufacturers 250 to 300 uh, machine tool die and mold companies uh, automation companies again the NAICS codes are a little broad there so you know on average about 350 companies working in some point whether it's the hardware or software and about 85 parts companies and that's growing you know did mention the battery plant and some of the supply chain uh, so that's growing so it's extraordinary you know when when we describe our region when we're out selling and prospecting and we describe it before we say how many people are actually you know how they, oh, you must be 1.5 to 2 million people in your region. Nope, 400,000 people. So the reputation uh, is an absolute benefit, Brendan, because the, understanding the quality and the quality awards that, that the workforce here and the OEMs have, have won, you know, uh, year over year. The commitment to, you know, Stellantis, we've talked about their involvement in the battery plant, but certainly, you know, uh, they made a, an announcement shortly after that about investing in uh, upgrading the Brampton plant and the Windsor plant because they have the skilled labor here. So that's wonderful news as well. The fact that uh, some of these e electric platforms are going to be manufactured here and also investing in uh, an R&D center they announced that day with the University of Windsor where they'll need approximately, they mentioned 650 engineers. So, so every level of, of of the workforce, skilled, you know, engineers, and is and it's it's certainly you know when you can point to that history, and point to the m measures that are being implemented to make sure it transitions well, right? It is a very powerful selling advantage for us. Let's dig into some of your academic partners and talk a little bit about skills development, because I mean, a hundred years of history, that's that's a long history. Talk to us a little bit about what's, like, in as much detail as you're comfortable giving us, about what sorts of retraining and courses or, or just sorts of, like, programs that are out there that maybe weren't there maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, or five years ago, you know. Or that. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Well, certainly, you know, St. Clair, friends at St. Clair College, who we work with quite a bit, they have really uh, stepped up their efforts to engage industry and partners to do that that research that applied research there and they've got 
know, they're undergoing, uh, they're working on a project now with, with our friends at Automobility Enterprises and Enwin Power, where they're converting a Ford F-150 truck from internal combustion engine to an to a electric vehicle. Uh, they've involved their students in that. It's fantastic. They've launched a new cybersecurity program. You know, remember those four pillars. They've got EV technician program that they're doing. So you're going to make all these uh, electric vehicles. Does anybody know how to fix them if something goes wrong? So just very forward thinking, you know, and very engaged and saying, what is the industry going to need? You know, because a post-secondary has two customers, right? The students coming in need to get a benefit. And then the the companies around the university should get a benefit. They should have products produced that they can employ. And the uh, the, the schools have been fantastic. So uh, I mentioned the Cybersecurity Institute at the University of Windsor. At the engineering building, they are totally redoing some of the labs. Uh, there's been some donations of some dinos. You've got Narayan Carr, who I'm sure you, you've met guys over the there. So just just leading in that in that electric powertrain research. Um, looking to add, you know, uh, uh, in the science f facility, like the materials engineering that are needed, chemistry, you know, because of course the, the chemicals involved. So, so just a wonderful, just being engaged and being proactive and saying, you know, what is going to happen? And then how do we play a role? What do we need to teach our students? And then can we do research with it? So um, just phenomenal partners, the University uh, and uh, Windsor St. Clair College that realizing that uh, offer the programs, recruit the, the, the faculty that you might not have because you're transitioning. So, and again, uh, some of the success, we've been pretty successful over the past couple of years uh, with recruiting and companies in this transition. And a big part of it is that the entire ecosystem is on the same page. The post-secondaries are on the same page. The city of Windsor, the county of Essex, 100% bought into to, to the strategy, uh, understanding, you know, that they need to have some policy for smart cities, for example, or electric charging stations and infrastructure. So nothing happens in a vacuum, right? You need that cooperation. And of course, our friends at the province and the federal government have been incredibly supportive to help us build the capacity, which now we're using to actually build the industry. So I like to say, you know, there's many economic development organizations or many ge geographies out there that intend to be or hope to be a biotech region or an automobility region. You know, we are an automobility region. We have, like I said, the tangible, uh, the jobs are coming, uh, and there's going to be even more jobs. Speaking of economic development, you are leading one of the most prominent, one of the kind of leading economic development, regional or municipal economic development organizations in the country. How, how has the vocation, how has uh, the profession of economic development evolved over the past few years? What kind of work are you doing now as an economic developer that maybe you weren't focused on a few years ago? And, you know, what general comment, what do, what do people need to know about the profession generally, about how to be successful at economic development, and, and maybe about where economic development is going, in your opinion? So this is a 24-hour podcast, right? Are you yeah. talk about <laughs> um, I, I appreciate that question and those kind words, Brendan. You know, I've been at this game now for, I think it's 27, 28 years, and there certainly has been some evolution and transition, just like, like every other industry. 
Um, in general, one of the things, one of the transitions that occurred is what we say in the old days or 10 to 15 years ago, you know, a lot of times the site selection process started with a call, you know, a call to our office or a call to, to an office. And, you know, it might take up to 18 months and, and everything was very slow. You started from scratch. Do we need some zoning and do we need this? Now, you know, by the time we get contacted by a company, we've probably passed two or three levels of review without even knowing it. So it's, it's that, you know, it, technology, the internet, the ability to, to, to collect data from sources that traditionally they would have had to get from us, for example, or practitioners. So the speed is unbelievable. So you've gotta have your data ready, you've gotta know it. And so we, you treat it like every other company needs to treat their product. For us, our product is a piece of geography. It's a region, uh, Windsor-Essex. And the region has product attributes like workforce and post-secondaries and healthcare and the, the suppliers and companies and transportation and infrastructure. So what we did when we undertook the, the strategic plan update five and a half years ago now, we said, look, we need to step back. You know, we do the analysis, we do the environmental scanning, do that asset mapping. What do we have? What are, you know, the SWOT, the famous SWOT, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And then, you know, what industries do we have an advantage in? And do we have a competitive case in? And then it's, it's to, to look at that. Then it's to say, okay, what's going on? You know, what's going on with the industries? Is there, is there technology coming in? Is there, is there, you know, disruption that's coming in? And, you know, we took the philosophy, disruption is inevitable. So you want to be the region that leads disruption, not a victim of disruption, right? So we said, okay, let's go. And in the case of the automotive, we realized that advanced manufacturing, of course, was still a, an incredible advantage. Our location uh, in the binational region was an incredible advantage. NAFTA, incredible advantage, you know, that integrated supply chain. And then looking forward, and as I said, you know, we, we realized that in Canada at the time, you know, there was a couple of mandates, you know, coming down from the federal government. They wanted a, a more a greener industry, a greener economy, uh, and of course, an advanced manufacturing economy. Well, put those things together, you get electric vehicles, right? So realizing it early, and then again, with, uh, with, with uh, would not have been possible with the support of the province of Ontario um, and the federal government to build that capacity. So we, we undertook research, you know, what is going on? We, we, we had a study called the Weekend Green. We called it Windsor-Essex Canada Green. And uh, we did the study and we identified the electric vehicle supply chains and we had diff identified the seven different sub-industry components and we identified which ones that we would be uh, competitive in. And then we started recruiting. Then we said, okay, and it came up, for example, battery plant, right? Now, you know, wishing you get a $5 billion project and actually getting one, there's a, quite a bit of distance between those two things. So we said, okay, what will we need? knowing that, we, that this is something that we can do. So data, so we realized we had to get uh, third-party verified data. So we worked with an accounting firm to verify data. Now it sounds pretty basic, for example, but it was labor data comparing U.S. and Canada. You ask uh, a lay person, do they think that labor costs are higher in Canada or the U.S., they're probably gonna say Canada because they know we have you know, socialized medicine and, and they, it's not. 
It's not. When you take in the insurance costs and things for the whole value, we had about a 25% advantage. People didn't know that, and then you present it. So we had, we had the data on, on labor, on workforce, on our infrastructure. You know, we have a bridge being built that's going to secure the next 125 years of two-way surface trade between, you know, Detroit and Windsor, Canada, the U.S. And then get the schools involved. You know, what do you need? How many engineers? What are we producing? Uh, you know, what, what types of, of curriculum changes are needed? So we had our post-secondaries came with us to missions to Germany and uh, Poland and, and, uh, and different places to, to learn and to understand it. Um, and, you know, sites. The sites have to be shovel-ready. In the old days, you could have a piece of land and then you start the discussion. Now, okay, is it for sale or for lease? And what and for how much? And are there utilities run to it? Or how far away are they? Is there broadband? Is, you know, the bridge is proximity to market? So we knew the factors that battery companies manufacturing in the auto from the history would find important. And so we put the packages together. And one of the things I'm most proud of, so we were actually at one point working with six battery companies, believe it or not, six. And of course, we, we got the best one. <laughs> uh, Stellantis and LGES uh, was that we were successful. But we put together the data, the sites, everything, and had it ready. And at one point, when we got the request for this particular project, which is being led by the, 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 the JV partner uh, LGES, the first questionnaire that comes in on these RFIs, it was 282 questions, okay, plus this, plus support, plus, plus the diagram. We turned it around in 12 hours, 12 hours. The team, I've, I've, um, I always say it, I have the most amazing team here in all our departments, so we were ready. We knew our product, we knew what the customer wanted, and we were in the running at one point with six different companies. And so you, you reminded me today, Brennan, uh, a year ago uh, with the announcement, you know, it was a, I say a five-year overnight success. You know, there was a lot of work, research, work, understand your product, understand it appeals to a customer, uh, understand what they need to make a decision. Just picture an international, even big or small, doesn't matter. You're, you consider an international investment. You consider any capital investment. There's a risk, right? Oh my gosh, if we spend this money, is it going to work? Then you put another complicating factor on that you're, it's international in a country where you might not have done business before and you don't know the processes and, and everything. So it's a stressful exercise, this, in, this investment attraction when you're the client. And so one of the things we really try to do is put the client at ease, understand that the more information that they have, the less stress they experience and the easier it is for them to make the job. So we really emphasize customer service and responsiveness. And I'm happy to say we've built some wonderful relationships with uh, the companies that we're attracting. And not for nothing, but that also allows them and gives them the comfort that they can introduce you to supply chain companies they think would be interesting because they know how they were treated and they know that, that we'll treat companies they refer us to with the same level of respect. I mean, I would agree with you, although I think we're all kind of biased in this room that you have a great team. Um, <laughs> a little bit, you, yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you're looking to build that team out, when you're looking to add to that team, what kind of skills, what kind of talents, what kind of, what kind of intangibles are you looking for from emerging or early career economic developers? Or put another way, 
What kind of advice would you give to uh, someone who's looking to get into the profession? What should they be focusing on? What they, should they be learning or be prepared to learn uh, if they want to set themselves up for a successful career in economic development, maybe with investments <laughs> or Essex? So. Well, um, it's a great question. I would say, you know, there's, there's not one single path, which is the good news. You know, certainly industry expertise, depending on, uh, on the industries that make sense for any organization, and in our case, Invest Windsor Essex. So uh, if you have uh, worked in uh, the, the food industry or automotive or pharmaceuticals, logistics, transportation, you know, if there's experience, industry experience that, that can be brought in and coupled with the training, that's always very helpful. Uh, some of the industries are quite technical, and as you can imagine, some of the requirements and questions would be on like a lay person. But there's also sales, you know, the ability to present depending on your role. I mean, we have five departments here, and every one of them requires customer service and concierge service, whether it's a small business client, one of our existing businesses that are here. So a demonstration of uh, interpersonal skills and comfort, you know, making presentations uh, is certainly helpful. I think a number of our staff, like I put as many through the EDCO training every year as, as we can. In fact, I just sent out the email to say, okay, who, who, who's up? I have so much money or what, you know, for this, let's, let's go. Um, and I think that's really helpful because traditionally economic development, there was no straight path on training and education. Maybe you were out in industry and then you kind of learned about this opportunity and you came in. But now I'm happy to say, you know, there's some universities and offering the, the courses in it um, so that you've got some young people coming up with it with an interest in it. Some international experience, you know, if you've got the, you know, if like right now we've got in our pipeline, we've got Korean companies, uh, United States companies, Japanese companies, Chinese companies. So familiarity with culture, business practice, uh, language, where it was there. So happy to say there's a number of, uh, of pathways to economic development that folks can explore. And our most recent hire was cybersecurity. Uh, one of our most recent grants, understanding, you know, the, the grant provider understood that, that cybersecurity is such a key point of the automobility. And so now we have our own cybersecurity person just started uh, last month and uh, working closely with the folks at St. Clair College. I mentioned they have a program going now with, with AJ Kahn, who, who uh, you know, we're all a fan of uh, with, with the uh, professors at University of Windsor for Shield. So it's a great field. I mean, I, I love it because you get to represent people. Like, as I said, nobody really gets rich working in economic development, but boy, when you do something right, you really help people. You really, really impact their lives in a positive way. Jobs and ability to, to have a home and live in a safe community. And it's, uh, it's pretty rewarding. So I, my background is automotive. I, I'm a gearhead. I'm a car guy. I like cars. And don't judge me for this, but I've, I used to sell cars in my early, early, early 20s. And I mean, I've seen the transition and the evolution of, you know, when back when ABS was new, back when airbags were optional equipment, then they became standard. And you, uh, you watch this progression and, okay, the airbags. Okay, so you have to work with your airbag providers. Oh, turbos. Everyone likes turbos now. Okay, so now you got to work with your turbo providers. The shift to automobility is going to take, from my understanding, more than just a discussion about the vehicle. Now you have to talk about infrastructure. 
And that is a, a municipal discussion. You have to get governments involved. You have to get third-party people, like, you know, the, the people that service hydro towers or, you know, electrical towers. So now th that, tell us a little bit, if you could, what sorts of challenges you're expecting? Because I think a lot of people don't fully understand that shifting to electric isn't just like installing a new airbag. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great point. And first of all, make sure you leave your resume with me before you, you go here, if you've been in <laughs> auto, because uh, we have some demand. You know, you touched on infrastructure, so let's look at that for a moment. So we've talked a lot about the, today the transition, okay, and electric vehicles playing a big role in that. But what we haven't talked about was adoption rate, right? Someone has to buy these electric vehicles that are presented. And the adoption rate, what's it, 9%, I think, uh, up from 5%. Uh, Brendan, you probably know yeah, better. Yeah, I mean, but that is n new vehicle sales quarterly. So it, it, it's trending up. Yeah. But there's still the, uh, there's an eight-year legacy of vehicles on the road. So when we hear 9%, that doesn't mean there's 9% of the vehicles on the road right, are electric right. vehicles. It means 9% of new vehicle sales. But trending up is trending up. There's and no denying it. When that's a good thing, because I said at a certain moment, as, a, as I mentioned before, and as, as you and your listeners well know, I think every OEM on the planet has, has specified a day by which they'll stop producing uh, ICE vehicles and only be producing electric vehicles. So... Is it an assumption that people will buy them and uptake? So what types of things have to be in place to make sure that you're going to buy it? So number one, you said it, infrastructure. People are not going to buy an electric vehicle if they can't charge it at home. What happens if they live in an apartment building? Uh, are there going to be enough spots in the garage or is there even a garage? How will they charge? And then travel, right, for electric vehicle, for uh, just traveling around town and and school grocery you know entertainment was one thing but traveling from here to uh, vancouver or here to nova scotia you know so well, oh, am i going to get caught somewhere and uh without it so certainly there's going to have to be the the installation of infrastructure and i'm happy to say a lot of municipalities uh, in ontario are, are definitely making commitments to do that uh, as we speak uh, the equipment itself you know one of the companies we were working with you know they produce the home charging stations, right? And so that's a, an evolving company that you wouldn't have even known existed five years ago, but now, you know, now they're there. So home infrastructure, municipal infrastructure, and then province and interprovincial infrastructure is going to be a big challenge. I drive to Nova Scotia usually once a year. That's where I'm from. Before I buy an electric vehicle, I'm going to need to be fairly confident that I can make it and not end up, you know, uh, Ed, Ed, Edmonton, New Brunswick better get its charging. Yeah, up or yeah. You're going to be stuck there for a while. Eh? So, yeah, yeah. That's a, lo the that's good, a long stretch the of the good news that, is that's where so, I usually stay on my yeah. first leg of my trip. So if they do, if they do, but yeah, adoption and again, it, happy to say there's, there's good programs going on to help that, but it's something, you know, we talk electric vehicles, it doesn't come up on uh, maybe, maybe with you guys, with your, your different circles that you travel in and different clients and partners you engage with, but someone's got to buy these vehicles in order to keep the, you know, the manufacturing numbers going. And that is a concern. I like to spin the yarn. Nick's heard it uh, 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 probably going on two dozen times now, but this, I grew up on a street in East Toronto. And when we were young and, you know, maybe this is the late eighties and it's winter 
and everyone would kind of have to try to jockey for position out front of their houses and then you'd be running or in front of your you know in front of somebody's house that you knew although we mostly knew each other and then everyone would be running extension cords plus extension cords you know out to plug in the block heater overnight because we didn't have driveways and and that was or your car wouldn't start in the morning that street still looks like that not they ha not everyone has gone and got a i mean you can't really go get a driveway and there's going to you know that's a well-populated street in the middle of toronto that they're going to need a different charging solution for and so i think there's a lot of work to do not just to get people in homes with driveways which is a big chunk of uh homes in, in Ontario, but to get charging stations there, but to figure out solutions, uh, public infrastructure, communal infrastructure for whether it's a condominium or really dense urban streets. So there's a lot, there's a lot to do, but hey, having a lot of work to do, that's a good thing. It's a lot better than having no work to do. And, and you know, that's kind of, I think, where we're at now, and it's interesting and exciting and that remind I me mean, hearing you say that Brendan reminds me you know there's a, a pilot project going on in Michigan with a stretch of road and is it is the right term is it convective charging it's that when the vehicle drives along the road it will be charging the road will charge it so sounds like if there's no driveway maybe there's a solution that it's gonna have to be on the street right in front of it so you know there's always a technological solution right but is it is it cost effective and is it something that can be commercialized and things like that but you know there's there's still work to do i mean you know i think the the commitment has been there by industry and and a lot of governments but at the end of the day uh, it's the people that speak with their pocketbook right so there's still work to do so speaking of biases brendan you were talking about how everyone in this room has some you know we're, we're all biased we, everyone in this room loves windsor we all get windsor we know it the company we chatted with this morning, I think that was an interesting conversation to get the view from outside. The view of Windsor from the outside, it was, I mean, without giving too much away, it was, it was incredibly good. La laudatory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we understand, you know, we deal with the challenges, the day-to-day -day grind of this and that. But the, again, the view from the outside is Windsor's where you want to be if you want to make things. This person got it. For the other people that don't know, what would you like to say to them? Well, certainly, you know, we think uh, Windsor-Essex is, is an amazing region. Uh, and I say that from both a, a business and industry point of view uh, and a quality of life point of view. You know, we're still one of the most affordable uh, cities uh, in the province. And the economy is growing. I mean, you know, the, the battery plant, 2,500 jobs, probably... Uh, we're working with a supply chain uh, group of companies now. Uh, there'll probably be at least another thousand jobs there. You know, then you use a very small multiplier of, of three. You know, that's another, you know, 15,000. So the, the, the job opportunities are going to be here. And that's, that's, that feels good. You know, anybody who, who wants to be able to stay in this region, you know, should be able to stay in this region over the next generation, which is fantastic. Um, as an organization, 
we welcome any calls from, from companies interested in exploring our strengths uh, as they apply to uh, their industry. Uh, certainly automotive, automobility will continue to be the driver, but we have other active clusters. Transportation logistics, uh, we had an announcement uh, yesterday, uh, Convoy Technologies coming over. They do cameras for, uh, for transport trucks coming from the states, 20,000 square feet, 50 jobs. Warehousing and distribution because of our binational uh, location. The food industry, you, you know, as you well know, and, and the greenhouse. So we're active in a num we have a number of industries that we feel we have a good business case that companies can be successful locating here. It's come up a couple of times, but phenomenal labor force, especially in manufacturing, advanced manufacturing. And as a corporation, you know, we'll continue to attract supply chain companies to support the, the industries that we're growing. But as important, we're going to make sure we run programs for companies who are already here to make sure that they can realize some of the opportunities that these new industries and new companies can present. And we will continue to support entrepreneurship with our friends at our post-secondaries and the province and the federal government to make sure that those that want to pursue development, perhaps of their own company, can do so and have the resources here. So we are on a growth pattern. and. Um, as I said, there's, there's still a lot of work to do, but uh, the future's certainly looking uh, very positive. Steve, I want to thank you for having us in this really cool office. <laughs> it's a really nice boardroom, and yeah, thanks for, your, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today, and uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you again. My pleasure. Thank you very much.